Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. We're going to start in verse 10 and down to the end of the chapter in verse 35. Exodus 34, uh, just quick background. Israel has broken the covenant, worshipped the false god, the golden calf that they made. Uh, God broke the, uh, told them they broke the covenant. Moses goes up and intercedes for them and says, please don't kill them. Uh, for my sake, please bring us back in. And God says, for your sake, I'll do it. And he says, I will not destroy the people. I will be with you as you go forward. And then Moses says, show me your glory. So God proclaims his name and says, I'm merciful and gracious. I'm also judging the guilty. And then we get to verse 10. So God has not killed them. Now what? He says, I'll be with you. Now what? And so in verse 10, it says, and he, the Lord said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. For you shall destroy their altars. Break their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take up his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourself. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. Every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, of the first fruit of wheat harvest and the feast of end gathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so, when Moses came down from the mount, from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, 
that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take, off, take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went to speak with him. So there's three parts to this. There's God making a new covenant. There's Moses talking to God. And there's people's reaction. So three things we're going to talk about. Who is God? We're Christians, right? Who is God? How does God change us? You see, knowing who God is needs to do something. We're not here to be the same, are we? So how does God change us? And what are the results of that change? There's a lot of disappointment in Christians because what they thought was going to be the change wasn't. They thought they knew who God was, and they knew God would change them, but they didn't expect the results. So it's important to understand who God is, how does he change us, but also what are those changes? They're not what we would naturally assume they are. So the Bible tells us. God is going to declare his mercy and his grace, and he's going to change his people. So what's the first thing here? The deal with Israel was... God will be their God, and they will be his people. He will bless them, and they'll obey him. That was the deal. And do you remember what they said in chapters before? They, with one voice, said, we will do it. We will obey everything God commanded. We will sign the covenant. And then what happened? Two or three weeks later, they completely and utterly shattered the covenant. Now, when you make a covenant in the Old Testament... It's called, the word literally is cut a covenant, because if you broke the covenant, you would be cut. So what should have happened here, according to the agreement that Israel made with God, was that when they broke it, they would die. That's what should have happened. God had been wronged, and as the injured party, he would take what was due to him. But Moses intercedes, and God doesn't. So look what God does. Verse 10, and he said, behold, I make a covenant. Now, as we see in the end of the chapter, it's the Ten Commandments. He's not making a new covenant. He has decided, I will not keep you accountable for what you did. I'll just renew the covenant. I'll renew the covenant that I made with you. So there's mercy. So we see two things about God, his mercy and his grace. The injured party, God, does not look back at what they did. What does he do? He says, behold, I make a covenant. Now, When we understand covenants, it always starts out with a prologue. And the prologue says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of of Egypt. Remember that? Now I make a covenant. Prologues always look back to why you're making it. But what about here? You see, if God had done that, what would he have had to say? You who broke my covenant, who betrayed me, I'm going to make a covenant. You see, he has to change it up. Because if he had looked back like the other covenants, all he would have seen was their sin. So what does he say here? 
Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do. God says, unlike all the other covenants you've seen, I'm not going to look back at the past. I'm going to look at the future. I'm going to pass over your sin and instead focus on what I will do for you. So mercy, when you see here God's mercy, that means you are do something terrible, and God says you don't have to get that. That's mercy. So that's what he does here. He looks forward instead of looking back. And then we see grace. So what's the difference between mercy and grace? Well, they're very closely related. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Unmerited favor, which includes mercy. But it means more than just judgment being passed over. He says, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among who you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. He's saying, you who committed betrayal, who broke the covenant, who couldn't wait a month before you turned your back on me, who rejected my covenant, I'm going to do amazing things for you. That's grace. Instead of getting what they deserved, God doesn't even say, I'm just going to leave you alone. He says, no, I'm going to give you so much more you can't even imagine it. I'm going to build something out of you. So when God's grace comes to you, he doesn't just forgive. He builds. He looks forward to what he's going to do. So what does this tell us about God? It tells us that he does what he wants to do regardless of what you do. God does what he wants to do. He has mercy on who he will have mercy, and he has grace on who will have grace. And the behavior of the people is not the basis for the grace. This is a perfect example of people doing terrible things, and God said, I'm still going to do great things for you. But what does he ask? Now remember, we're reading the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. So there's going to be some discontinuity. God's the same, but the covenant's not. So he says, I'm going to do great things for you. Here's what you need to do. Keep the covenant. Observe what I command you. Verse 12, take heed to yourself. So God expects a covenant from his people. He expects commitment from Israel. He says, I'm going to make a covenant for you, with you, so don't make covenants with other people. You can't have two covenants. You can't split. You have to choose one or the other. So he says, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Now, do you see the irony here? God says, I'm going to make something in your country that's never been seen. So don't make a covenant with the people who are going to be wiped out. Why would they do that? Why would they choose the losing side over God's side? Ask yourself, why do you choose sin over God? Why? There's no answer for why, because it's, it's corrupted. You see, the very reason you give don't make sense. Chaos is sin. So when you sin, you're, you're, you're suspending logic. You're suspending reason. You're suspending reality. You're saying, I'm going to choose the people who will be wiped out over the God who will build something. And when you put it that way, it sounds ridiculous. So are the choices you make. Now, you build frames around them, and you cover them with good reasons, but at the core, it's empty. There's nothingness there. It's choosing nothing over God. And what this is warning the Israelites and warning us is you will do it. As unreasonable and as illogical and as foolish as it is, you will do it. 
we assume that we're going to be a little bit smarter than they are, a little bit better, a little bit more aware, but we're not. They are the same humans that we are. God, by nature, by his very core nature that has existed from all eternity, has no rivals and will not allow rivals. It's interesting, look at verse 14. And you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. You see how much more serious? It's not just God is jealous. His very name is, I'll have no rivals. I'll share with no one. A jealous God whose name is jealous says, you'll make a covenant with me, and that's it. There's no sharing here. That's the nature of God. That's not just a covenant he makes. So if that's God's very nature, whose name is jealous, and God doesn't change, guess what's still true today? God's nature has not changed, which means when you relate to God, this is who he is. A God who doesn't share space. He doesn't let someone sit next to him and say, well, he's not the true God, but we're just going to share a little bit. He's a jealous God. And if he is God and he's jealous, that means the power of God and the exclusivity of God are go hand in hand. Amen. So that when you choose other gods, you're putting yourself up against the creator. And the warning is here because it's in our very nature to do it. What's the answer? It's not just don't make covenants. It's not just don't sin. That's never the answer, because that's not enough, is it? Emptiness. See, negatives don't produce anything. If it's don't sin, then what do you fill that negative space with? The devil will tell you, all you need to do is not sin. Wait, the devil tells you not to sin? Yeah, he says those words. Just try not to sin. Work on not sinning. That's what Satan says to you. Because Satan knows that you can never just not sin. So what does God tell us? Look verse 18. So verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourself. A reference there to the golden calf. Instead, Satan says just don't sin. But God says don't sin and instead you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Then from 18 down to 28, God gives the replacement for sin, which is worship. He says, but the firstborn you shall redeem. Six days you shall work, and the seventh day you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the feast of ingathering. I'll cast out nations before you so that you can worship. And then he gives the details. What God is saying is when you don't sin, you worship. So if you don't want to sin, worship. Now, it's just not worship how you feel. You notice the detail here? The detail shows us something about God. He cares how you worship. Very detailed, very proper use of worship. Even down to you should not offer blood, the first fruits. This, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know what that means, but I do know that he cares about the details. You see how detailed these worship? Now, what he's doing, he's reiterating everything he gave before. If you've been here over the past few months, we went through all of this. He's reiterating it. He's renewing it. He's saying worship is the key to life, so you better do it right. Let me give you the details. And that was for Israel, how they worship, but the principle is the same. Don't make false covenants. Don't follow false gods. But instead, focus carefully, intentionally, deliberately, and properly on the true God. 
It's a, it's a relationship that goes together. If you focus on the true God, you won't focus on the false God. And if you refuse to focus on the false God, then you focus on the true God. So often we sin because we just try not to. Or our life is consumed with not sinning, which makes sin the very focus of our life. Your life is made of focusing on your sins to get rid of them. And you are what you worship. You become what you love. So what God is saying is you worship and you won't need to make covenants. You won't even want to. Wouldn't it be so much better if you just didn't want to sin? Oh, man, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Just have to stop fighting, just not want to? How do you get rid of wants by replacing them with better? Wouldn't you like to just stay in bed all day, every day? Someone say no. It's a kid. <laughs> it's a kid. You would like to, but you want something else more. You want food or money or something. So it's not that you stop wanting to not do anything. It's that you want something else more. So it's not that you ever stop wanting to sin. It's that you want something more that pushes out the desire. That is how true worship changes us. But God says, and we realize that this was not for us, this covenant, these, keeping these rules were not for us, these Ten Commandments. So God makes a new covenant. See, the old covenant was great. It was so great that when Moses was receiving it, his face glowed. That's pretty good, isn't it? But if it was so great, then why do we have so much left of the Bible? If this was the greatest, then what's the rest of this about? 2 Corinthians gives an explanation for this passage. It says, specifically talking about what we're, the, Exodus 34. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones... Ten Commandments, was glorious. So the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was going to pass. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation, the judging law that tells you you're wrong, had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For what is passing away was glorious, but what remains is much more glorious. You see, if we just stuck with the Old Testament, it'd be great. But the New Testament would be left behind. You see, we start in the Old Testament, but we finish in the New Testament. That was great back then, but it passed away, which means what remains is better. The New Covenant is better, and here's why. The Old Covenant was half on God, half on man. God says, I'll do my part, you do your part. You stay faithful and I'll bless. And that's a great covenant. No one else in the whole world had that covenant except for Israel. But the problem is, half of it was on man. And the rest of the Old Testament comes out of that passage. The rest of the Old Testament is showing how that half fails. This sets the tone for the rest of the Old Testament. And the whole story of the Old Testament is, man tries, but he always fails. So the new covenant... How is the new covenant greater? Simple. God says, instead of half and half, I'll take both on mine. So what God says is, I'll take the half that I had at the beginning of being faithful to you and blessing you and making you great, and I'll take your half. So if God can't change, and he takes both half of the covenant, then the covenant can't change. For the new covenant to change or pass or be broken or to be done away with, God would have to change himself.
He would have to change his own nature. He would have to break the covenant himself. So when Christ kept the righteousness in the law and died for our sins and made a covenant with God and rose again, that's the whole covenant. So for the covenant to be broken like it was broken in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ himself would have to worship a false god. Remember Satan tried? I'll give you everything if you just bow before me. And what happened? Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Get out of here before I kill you. That's basically what he said to him. He used the word of God, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, against Satan, and Satan left. So the new covenant is based on the righteousness of Christ and the faithfulness of God. The end. That's a better covenant, isn't it? So we look at the Old Testament, we glory in its covenant so that we can look at the New Testament and see how much better it is. But it doesn't end there. You see, God makes a covenant, but those are just words. Those are just contracts. The covenant doesn't end with words. It ends with experience. So often we say, just tell me the details, give me the contract, give me the outline, give me the content, and then we stop there. But look what happens to Moses. He receives it, and it changes him at a physical, personal level. So we see the Lord's covenant, his covenant of grace. We also see the Lord's communion of grace. Now it was so when Moses came down from the Mount of Sinai with the Ten Commandments that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him, capital H, him. Moses had been changed by his contact with God so that his very face was glowing, shining out. It's hard to describe exactly what was happening. How was Moses changed? By the word of God. He says, his face shone while he talked with God. As God's word came to Moses, Moses was changed. Moses didn't do anything. You realize Moses didn't do anything. He didn't even write the Ten Commandments. He just listened, experienced the word coming to him, and it changed him. If we talk about who is God, how does God change us? Here's the key. The word changes us. The word comes to us. People hear the word, believe it, and they're changed. But look what happened in this passage. Moses, a minister of the good news, comes down from the mountain and says, Good news. He's not going to kill everybody. In fact, he's renewed the covenant. He's overlooked everything. It's so good that my face is glowing. The word of God is so good that my face is glowing. But the people were afraid. Why were the people afraid? Because the people didn't want God. They didn't want God. And when they saw God's glory on Moses' face, they didn't want Moses either. How do we know this? Partly because they never followed God. Every single one of these people, except for a few, two or three, died as punishment for rejecting God. These people said, Moses, you look like you've been with God. Please cover that up. We'll take the word. You see, they listen to the word, but we don't want the experience. Tell us what he said, but keep the experience for yourself. Put a veil over God's glory. People sit week after week hearing preaching around the world and in this church, and they'll listen to it, and they'll accept that it's the word, but they'll never be changed by it. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. 
For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Talking about this passage. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. See, when Moses heard God's word, he said, that's true, I want it. And his face was changed. When Israel heard the same words, they said, no, we'll take it for now. But as soon as something better comes along, we'll take that. And they were not changed. And every one of them fell in the wilderness, except the ones who believed. People hear the word, but are afraid of the experience. They were afraid because they were sinners, and they saw the holiness of God, and they were unholy. And people who are unholy fear God's presence. Israel rejected God, so they were afraid when they saw God's glory. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians again, the same passage. Unlike Moses, therefore we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. That was the old covenant. But their minds were blinded. Their minds were blinded. So they said, put the veil on. Their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. To this day, right now, when I read the words of Moses, does a veil lie on your heart? You hear the words, but it doesn't go anywhere. A veil lies over your heart and that the words are heard with your ears, but there's no experience. There's no change. When you're unholy and you see God's holiness, you don't want it. But then when you realize that you have nothing else, what do you do? We cover up God's word with different kinds of veils. In the Old Testament, they were afraid, and so they said, put a physical veil over it. But the physical veil was a response of their heart. Many people, when they read the Old Testament, they put the veil, the veil of works over it. They said, yeah, but. I know that's true and God does it all, but what do I need to do? And so they never get the experience because they're always in the way. Perhaps your veil is false teaching that you've heard. You've heard people take the Old Testament and say, this is God's word and it's true. And then they misinterpret it to you. And so then you won't listen to it anymore. You see, you've used a false teacher as a veil over God's word. You've been hurt by false teaching, so you say, well, I'm not going to listen anymore to God's word. That sounds good, and that feels right, but that's still the same problem. Putting a human veil over God's word. The answer is not to get rid of the word. The answer is to understand it and to take the veil away. How? He says, and Paul says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You don't want to read the Old Testament because you don't see Christ there. And why would I want to read a bunch of rules and laws and all that stuff if Christ is not there? And so the veil is, remains over our hearts until we turn to Christ. And when we turn to Christ, we understand Moses. You can't understand the Old Testament until you understand Jesus. 
Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'll pay for everything so when you look at the holiness of God, you're not afraid anymore. When you look at the holiness of God, you can stand and look straight into God's face and not be afraid. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Until you get rid of all the veils that you've got in your life, all the works and the hurt and the past and the future and your own abilities and all that good stuff that you've put in the way, you'll be the same person you were last week. But when you take all that away and just say, Jesus, show me, I believe whatever you say, then you'll be transformed by staring into the very face of God unveiled with no fear, just like Moses. Turn to Christ. The word of God transforms us on the inside. That's the key here. You see, God is who he is, and he changes us through his word, understood through Christ. But what's the result? Is it like Moses where your face actually shines? You see, what the Old Testament says is when you see God's glory, your face changes, your body changes, your situation changes. You go into the promised land. There's no enemies there. There's actually food on your table. But what the new covenant says is that when you behold God's glory in Christ, the inside is changed, not the outside. And if you don't understand that, you will never, ever be happy. The Lord changes by grace the inside, not the outside. Colossians 1 says, God will to make known where the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians 3 says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Wait, that means Christ will not dwell in your bank account. Christ will not dwell in your home. Christ will not dwell at your job. Christ will dwell in your heart. And where you go, Christ will be. But it's the heart that's changed. Being rooted and grounded in love. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Not your life. You. There's a prosperity gospel that's being preached all across America, and including independent Baptist churches, that said God will change your life if you believe him. The Bible says that God will change you if you believe him. And your life may get worse. Your life may never see the blessings of God, but you will. That's a hard saying. But that's the hope of the gospel. That's the truth of Christ. The inner light, the inner Christ, is the promise of the new covenant. It's less glamorous, for sure, than your face shining and a bunch of property and a bunch of money. But it's stronger it's better. You see, Moses died. And that shine on his face, that didn't help, did it? The shine on your face and the money in your bank account and the good relationships don't change your heart. They don't take away the fear. They don't take away the guilt. They just change the outside. But the inner light, 
changes the inside, and then shines out. You see, what does it mean to be changed? What does God change? He changes two things. He changes your mission. You see, your mission before was to have a lot of stuff, to be happy, to be entertained, to be comfortable. That's not the mission of Christ. You see, in 2 Corinthians, after he says, this is what happened to Moses, this is how it's changed, he says, therefore, since we have received this ministry, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. You see how it's outward focused? You're changed on the inside, and that goes out. But even if our gospel is veiled to those, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You see, no one's going to want to listen to you sometimes. But it's veiled to their loss, not to yours. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord. What's your purpose in this life? To be changed and then to tell people about Jesus. That's it. That's what the gospel promises you, to be changed and to tell people about Jesus. Is that what your life is doing right now? Have you even accepted Jesus? Or are you just accepting this, the crowd, even the Bible in your hands, the preaching? Or have you accepted Christ? If you've accepted Christ, then your mission is to tell other people. Preach, the Christ, preach Christ and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not the face of Moses, not your face, the face of Jesus. So if you've got a different message, it has no hope, it has no power. This church has a different message other than Jesus Christ. It'll do nothing except change the surroundings. What is Chesapeake Baptist Church about? What is everything that we have about? If it's not Jesus, it's worthless. It will all pass away. But if this is true, that the inner light changes you, that means your life is going to be tough. Your life is not going to be happy sometimes because God never promised it would. But what the inner truth does, the inner light of Christ in you, it sustains you while the outer pressure crushes you. God says, you're going to have a ton of trouble in this life, but I'm in you, so you'll be fine. As the world presses in on you, Christ sustains you. See, that's what the passage continues in 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure, that is Christ, in earthen vessels. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Always dying in this body. That the life of Jesus also be manifested in our body. You know why you're still here? If you've got Jesus, you're still here because he kept you here. And if you don't have Jesus, he's given you a little bit more time. 
before he crushes you. But if you're still here, despite everything, it's because Jesus won't let you be crushed. You're like, man, I'm feeling pretty pressed right now. Yeah, for sure. That's being a Christian. That's being a human. I'm confused. Yes. I'm persecuted. Yes. I'm suffering. Yes. But you're still here. You're still here. Why? Because there's an inner light inside of you that cannot be crushed. Why? Jesus Christ lives in you. And who is going to crush Jesus? How does God change you? By putting Christ in you. And the Holy Spirit will not let that change. So whatever else is happening to you, it will not pressure you. What that means for a Christian is you are fully aware of the sorrow and the pain in this world. You feel it. You feel it more than most. You lament. The Psalms are full of laments. Of saying, just this is terrible. In a more modern sense, there's a song by a band called U2. You can look them up if you want. Or not. But it's a song of lament. And I first heard it and I thought it was sacrilegious. Because it doesn't talk about Jesus saving everybody. It doesn't talk about everything turning out because Jesus is on the throne. It says, heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all this hanging around. Sick of sorrow, sick of pain. Sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth? this peace on earth. What's it worth, this peace on earth? I'll tell you what it's worth. It's not worth anything because it was never promised to you. All that was promised to you was Christ in you. And if you believe that, that's enough. If that word is mixed with faith, it's enough. And if it's not mixed with faith, you will be crushed. You will never get up. The grace of God comes to you right now in the word of God. And mixed with faith, God, faith, God will change your heart so that when you're pressed, you'll stand up. Grace that is greater than our sin. Marvelous, infinite, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Let's pray.